begins to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. So while Psalm 4 was written for the strings, Psalm 5 was written for the flutes or the wind instruments, the pipes, whatever they might have had at this time. The nehilot is the Hebrew word. So some of your Bibles might just have it transliterated. Nehilot, that word means pipes or flutes. And it was written by David. And he says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. That's a great example of Hebrew parallelism right there. You say it one way, and then you say it again slightly different, but you're making the same point. Give ear to my words, consider my groaning. What's the difference? Not much, really. It's, it's saying the same thing. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Here's the third one. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. As with many of the early Psalms, especially getting to about chapter 40, 41, this is a cry for help to the Lord from David's enemies. God, I'm facing down these people. They're causing trouble for me and I need your help. He even calls it a groaning. Now, I grew up and I was not to be a groaner and a moaner and a complainer. But it's nice to know that even when the best we can do is groan before the Lord, that he still hears us, isn't it? His groaning, his cry for help. These two verses are an invocation, calling upon God to hear. You can imagine this as something like the introduction of the song, that it begins with, hear us, O Lord, hear us as we cry out to you. And what's so great is that David is confident that he will indeed be heard as he cries out to the Lord. And David in this psalm is going to use the illustration of being welcomed into God's house. And this carries a lot of great cultural implications because when we invite someone into our house, even so, it's, a, it's an intimate thing. It's a special thing that if I've welcomed you into my house, there's a certain level of respect that is expected from not only the host, but from the guest. And if you're being a bad host, then people don't appreciate that. And if you're being a bad guest, your host really doesn't appreciate that. However, it was all that much more intense in this culture, and it still is in very many cultures, that if somebody was a guest under your roof, especially for more than like a meal or two, but to be a long-term guest, you assumed a level of responsibility for that person, that they were under your roof, they were eating your food, they were spending time with your family. So to be in someone house was to be under their protection. Consider when Lot was being accosted by those men at his door and they wanted the angels to come out to them. Leaving aside the grotesque part of that story, Lot comes out and he says, these men are under my house, under my protection. You can't do this to them. You might say, why is Lot the one doing that? Because hospitality was very important and still is in this culture and in many parts of the Lord, to, in parts of the world. To be in someone's house is to be under their protection. So the question that we should ask is, all right, who is able to enter the house of the Lord? To be invited into God's house is to be under the protection and under the blessing and, and care of God himself. So who gets to go in there? As Psalm 24, verse 3 phrases it, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? You might say that is the question of religion. Who is acceptable before God? And that's something that all of us desire. Even those of us that are not particularly religious. Now you're here at church on a Wednesday night, so you probably are. 
But if we're going to look at this a little broader, even those that don't particularly care about church still worry, I wonder if me and God are okay. If God's real, I sure hope that he and I are on pretty good terms. How many people are convinced that they're going to heaven someday? They expect to be invited into God's house. Well, if you want to enter God's house, you need to discover who is welcome in God's house because he's told us. And when you start thinking about it that way, you can maybe start to despair and say, well, if there's any kind of standard, I'm sure that I have not met it. Well, you're not far from the kingdom of God if that's your attitude. But the good news is that the love of God in Jesus Christ has invited us into God's house. And we see this revealed in Psalm 5. Let's keep reading. We'll do large sections tonight. Verses 3 through 7. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Well, this is a morning song. So flutes, sounds like a nice morning instrument. You don't maybe want a big brass band first thing in the morning, or maybe you do. But you can see this is a morning song. Oh, Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. This is likely a reference to the morning sacrifice. In Exodus 29, when God was ordaining the priests, in verses 38 through 40, he told them the first thing you must do every day is offer a burnt offering, a grain offering, and a drink offering. A burnt offering would have been the sacrifice of a lamb on God's altar, prepared and entirely consumed. Most offerings were not entirely burned up. You would burn pieces of them, and then you would take the rest of the meat home to cook and to eat. But a burnt offering consumed all of it. Then you had a grain offering where you would put bread on the altar. You would pour oil on it, put a piece of frankincense on it, and that would burn up. And then a drink offering, you would take a, a vessel of some kind, usually with wine in it, and you would pour that out on top of the altar. Every morning, the priest was to do this, a lamb, bread, and wine. There also was an evening sacrifice. And many times the Bible will reference the morning and the evening sacrifice. So it could very well be that David wrote this psalm to be sung during the morning sacrifice. Or maybe it was at least played that way. But interesting, though, in verse 3, where he says, in the English Standard Version, which we are reading, he says, in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. You may have that italicized in your Bible. When a word in the Bible is italicized, usually that means this specific word is not included in the text. We have added it for clarification. So the reason you need that is because the literal Hebrew there just says, in the morning, I prepare for you. Not I'm preparing myself. I'm preparing something. I'm preparing it for you. If you have the New King James Version, it just says that. In the morning, I prepare it for you. The word is arak. And it literally means to arrange or to order something. You'll hear often in the Bible, it says that Abraham arranged the wood on the altar or Elijah arranged the bull on the altar. This is a sacrificial word. The New King James Version chooses to keep it neutral. I prepare it, something for you. Some other translations, like the King James, the New International Version, the New American Standard, they see this as referring to 
the voice of the psalmist. So he says, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare it for you. So I'm, a, I'm arranging or preparing my prayer or my voice to you. The English Standard Version takes that word about preparation pretty seriously and includes the helping words, I prepare a sacrifice for you. One other very interesting option comes from, it used to be called the Holman Standard Bible, now it's just called the Christian Standard Bible, but uh, it says, I prepare a case. I prepare my legal case before you. So that's another thing that that word prepare can go along with, to arak something. You're preparing to go to court. So David is saying, I'm coming before you. I've got these enemies. I'm in the right. They're in the wrong. I'm going to come first thing in the morning, present my case to you, and I know you'll take my side because I've chosen to follow you. I think that might be stretching it out of the context just a little bit. I don't think it's wrong. I, I think the ESV's actually got it pretty good here. That in the morning, I'm going to come into your house, and what do you do first thing in the morning? What are you arak? in the temple or the tabernacle first thing in the morning, a morning sacrifice. So that's what David is doing here. And verse seven actually clarifies that this was in the holy temple. Now David had not built the temple yet. It was the tabernacle at the time. His son Solomon would build the temple, but uh, you'll find in the literature that was written before the temple was built, they would sometimes refer to the tabernacle as God's temple until the actual structure itself was, was built. So this is when this would have been written. But this house of the Lord that he's going to, to offer these sacrifices, is bigger than just a building. And you can see how the context expands beyond actually going to church, right? To the building, the house of the Lord. Anybody could go in there. If you were an Israelite, you could go to the tabernacle. If you were clean, you could go to the tabernacle. You could go to the sanctuary and you could worship. But God's house is different. God's spiritual house, his domain, where you are brought into his hall, when you're brought into his household, then there's, there's, a, there's a certain group of people that are permitted and others that are not. And David spends time laying out who is not welcome in God's house. He talks about those that may not dwell with you, the ones that shall not stand before you, those that are abhorred and hated even by the Lord. And the, the short way to say this is sin keeps us out. If you want to go into God's house under his protection, remember, sin will keep you out of God's house. He will not allow wickedness into his house, nor should he. You shouldn't allow wickedness into your house either. And remember, this is not just coming over for a meal. There's something deeper about this. And there's actually a quote I want to read here uh, from one of the commentators that I read who I thought really captured this very well. He says about this verse, when he says that evil cannot dwell with you, he means evil cannot even lodge temporarily in God's presence. It cannot be God's guest, for that would entitle evil to God's care and protection. Evil is not welcome in God's house. You ever thought about it that way? God can't give approval to the things that are evil. And that's why we all need to be concerned that we are not kept out of God's house. Everyone assumes, well, I was a pretty good person, so I'll be going to heaven. Well, don't be too sure about that. Because the Bible tells us that evildoers will not be permitted in God's house. Now, most of us will hear that and say, oh, come on, I'm not an evildoer. You know, I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice gal. I do good things. All right. Maybe you're not considering yourself an evildoer, but let's look at some of these examples he gives of those that are not welcome in the house of the Lord. When he says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Are you boastful? 
Are you boastful? Are you proud? Now you must say, no, I'm not boastful. We watched Beauty and the Beast with the kids the other night. Gaston was boastful. He was singing songs about himself for the whole world to hear. All right. Well, what kind of tone do your social media posts have? Are you posting them? Because I just want everybody to see what I did. All right. Was it that? Or is it you wanted everybody to applaud you? You want everybody to see and tell you how good you are. And there's nothing wrong with people telling you you did well. Even Galatians says that. Nor is there anything wrong from enjoying the approval of others. But when you start doing things deliberately to garner approval and applause from people, isn't that the same thing as boasting? Or you like, you humble brag? So you talk about, I would never do this because I'm not liked. And oh, you've always been so wonderful. And yeah, thank you. <laughs> we do that, don't we? To be boastful. I'm not boastful. I'm just confident. All right? You tell me what the difference is for you. Well, you've got to be a little braggadocious and got to be a little, have a little swagger if you want to get ahead in life. Really? Is that how Jesus did it? Oh, you can't use him as an example. I have to use him as an example because he is our example. What about the next one? Those who speak lies. Do you speak lies? I'm not a liar. Do you lie? Then what does that make you? <laughs> I'm not a liar. I just lie sometimes. That's not going to fly with Jesus, man. The Bible says one of the things that the Lord hates is everyone who loves and practices a lie. And I, I appreciate that our culture, for all of its flaws, is still very sensitive to lies from people. We don't take kindly when we find out that a politician or a company or our boss has been lying to us, do we? Now, we struggle with that in our personal life, but that, you know, we spend a lot of time beating up the culture. We can at least say, hey, at least we know honesty is a good thing. We kind of have this fascination with honesty where I'm going to tell you everything about me, <laughs> you know. But do you, do you tell little lies? Where were you today? Oh, you know, nowhere. This was late at work. Sometimes we lie about things that don't even matter. I just, I just said something else than what happened. Not sure why I did that. I just did. Speaking lies. The Lord says, no lies in my house. For Jesus said, I am the truth. What about the bloodthirsty? Gee, I sure hope there's no bloodthirsty people in here. But let's put it this way. We are so blessed to live in a very safe and stable society, right? So many of us have never been faced with the opportunity or temptation to be bloodthirsty. So how do you know if you would be that person? There are some people that say foolish things like, well, you never know what you're going to do until the moment comes. That's rubbish. Because Jesus told us if you hate your brother, that's murder in your heart. He told us you can tell what you would do by the things that turn around in your heart. Do you cultivate hate for other people? Do you cultivate this disdainful attitude towards certain groups or to certain parts of town or to people in your own family? Do you take a little bit of pleasure when you see your enemies being struck down? You don't want to be that kind of person because that's a bloodthirsty person. You know, you've ever gone through, well, say you've ever been through some kind of service industry and you get to know some of the people that you work alongside that go out of their way to ruin somebody else's day. I used to work at Subway. I knew a few of those people. Most of them were lovely. But there were a few that would go out of their way. One guy that said, my, one of my favorite things to do is to, when I bend over to pick up the ingredients, I like to take the sandwich and drag it along the floor and see how many times I can do it before I give it to somebody. 
And I think about that guy sometimes. And he thought he was real funny. But the longer you talk to him, the more you realize this guy really does not like people. Not like, oh, I prefer to be alone. No, he did not like people. And I think about that guy sometimes and go, you know, you put a machine gun in that guy's hand instead of a sandwich, what are you going to get? Oh, it's kind of silly. No, it's not silly. Where, that's where bloodthirsty comes from. Oh, what about number four? Deceitful. Deceitful. Are you deceitful? What's the difference between that and lying? Deceit is a way of acting and conducting yourself to conceal things. That you go out of your way to make sure nobody really knows who you are. All these things, that's wickedness. You're talking about lies and hate and being boastful? Yeah, that's evil. That's not just all part of being alive. No, that's wicked. And that's evil. These are things that we cannot despise in other people, but we want to excuse for ourselves. And we know that every single one of us has one of these things in our hearts to some degree. Romans 3.23, the word tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us fall short of the glory of God's house. Psalm 51.5 says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is desperately sick. And it's hard to even know sometimes what's in your heart. And that's horrendous news. If we're all sinners and God cannot overlook sin, God can't sanction or approve sin, bring it under his house and give it his protection, then what does it say about us? It says that we shall not stand. You won't be able to stand before the Lord. It even says that those that live such a way are hated and abhorred by God. That can be a tough one to swallow because we spend time delighting in the, the love of God. And we're about to talk about the love of God. But we need to understand God's attitude towards sin is not, I wish I could just let you do it, but you know, rules is rules. Lord hates and abhors sin. And even, it says in this passage, the sinner too. The person that perpetuates and inflicts these things upon other people is hated by God. How could it be otherwise? It says that they will be destroyed by God. That's where we stand. If we desire to be heard of God and come into his house, we've got to address the fact that the Bible tells us we stand condemned and that we are clearly and obviously in the category of those that are not welcome in his house. So what is to be done? Well, we can take comfort in the fact that David himself is rather confident that he will be heard. Do you see that? I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I'm coming in. <laughs> I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. How does he say that with such confidence? How do we get in his house? Well, remember we read Psalm 24, verse 3, that says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The following verse tells us they need clean hands and a pure heart. You say, well, so much for that, because I'm a sinner. We just went through this list. I fall in that category. Now you might look at David and say, wait a minute, David was a sinner too. You have a bloodthirsty men. David killed an awful lot of people, even when he didn't have to. David was also a bit of a hound dog with the ladies. David also was a rotten father. So wait a minute, how does this guy get to stand and say, I will enter the house of the Lord, meanwhile I'm sitting here feeling all guilty. Notice where David's confidence comes from. 
The locus of David's confidence before God is not his own righteousness. It's not that he's never done those things. It's not anything that he's done to earn it. He says, through the abundance of your steadfast love. Do you see that? David's confidence to enter God's house is not because of anything he has done, because of something God has done. Steadfast love. This is a great Bible word. The Hebrew is chesed. Can you say that? Say chesed. Good. You got to do the ch. Because if you just make an H sound, that's a totally different letter in Hebrew. Chesed. All right. Now your Bible might have the old fashioned word, and I love it, loving kindness. And that's a great word. Why do all the translations do it a little differently? Some of them just have mercy. Some of them have loving kindness. The ESV has steadfast love. Because this is one of those Hebrew words that just doesn't translate. It's so powerful and so potent. And English has words like that too. Don't get me wrong. But trying to translate it, it's ah, loving kindness. Oh, but, it, but there's steadfastness in there too. But there's also the sense of covenant and relationship that ties into it. And, and so steadfast love, it is. Steadfast covenant, loving kindness, faithfulness. It's love that never gives up. It's a kind of love that God has for the people that are brought into covenant with him and the kind of love and faithfulness we are expected to have in the covenant that we have with the Lord. God says, I have loved you so much that I will keep my covenant with you. And we are supposed to have the same attitude. That chesed, steadfast love, loving kindness. David says, I will enter the house of the Lord, sinner that I am, because of God's chesed. Because of God's loving kindness. The abundance of his loving kindness. No one has the right to enter your house. Isn't that so? That's kind of a line that we draw sometimes. You're not coming in my house. Maybe you said to your daughter, you're not bringing that boy around my house. Maybe you've had to tell a family member, you're not coming into my house anymore. We even have laws that say the government and police can't come into your house unless there are certain procedures that are followed or if you give permission. It is an act of will to let someone into your house. And we need to remember that as we're talking about God's house. Well, God has to let me in. God goes, excuse me, it's my house. I don't have to do anything. And this is an act of will from the Lord. The only thing that will allow anybody to enter God's house is nothing they have done that can make, them, make God obligated to them, but it has to be an act of God's will. I will invite you in. But what kind of attitude does God have to have to be willing to invite sinners into his house? Chesed, loving kindness. You say, okay, yeah, I would have to take an awful lot of loving kindness to let sinners like us into his house. But does God have that kind of love for sinners like us? Let me read you something Jesus said in John 14, verses 2 through 3. Jesus told his disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms. I know the old translation said mansion. That word mansion meant something a little different back in the day when we first translated that. So rooms, meaning it's a big old house. It's a big house. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus said, my daddy has a big house and you're invited. I'm going to go away for a bit, but then I'm going to come back and take you to my dad's house where I've prepared a place for you. 
Does God have the attitude to want to bring people into his house? You better believe it. How do you know? Through Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to earth and welcomed us into God's house. Now, how can he do that? The wicked cannot stand in God's house. Jesus said, I will take all the penalty that your sin deserves upon myself. I'll die in your place, pay the debt, rise again from the dead on the third day. Hallelujah. Your sins will be erased and the righteousness of Christ will be imputed to you. Imputed is an accounting term. Jesus said, I'm going to take your unrighteousness. I'll pay for that. So now that category is at zero. I've got infinite righteousness. I'm going to put that over in your category. So now when you stand before God, your account sheet says infinite righteousness. That's Romans 4.24. Go take a look at it if you like. Your sins have been erased. That's what Jesus did. By his love, for God so loved the world, he gave his son to open up the door. He said, I have all these people I want to invite to my house and take them under my wing and my protection, but they're so full of sin. Let's pay for their sin, then we can invite them freely. And the motivation for all that was God's chesed for you. Even David in the Old Testament knew that. You could even say that David had messed up so bad, he knew good and well, the only reason God's letting me in is if he does something. It's got to be his love. And even though Jesus, uh, David did not know the name of Jesus, or even the fact that he would die on a cross and rise again, he knew that God's going to have to make a way. And I know he will, because I know God's loving kindness. He won't leave us out in the cold like this. And that's what it is. It's God's grace that we trust. Even though we should be excluded, we are welcomed through the abundance of the loving kindness of God. So don't sit there trying to see if you measure up. Let me save you some time. You don't. But the good news is that Jesus says, how about I just give you mine? I'll take yours and we'll just deal with that. And I'll give you mine freely. If you can believe that, then it's open to you. Verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So again, we can see David's enemies featuring in this psalm, although we do not have details here. I read a few folks that were pretty convinced of what the circumstances were. All I can say to that is it doesn't say. <laughs> he talks about lies that they were speaking. He talks about false counsels that were being made, even rebellion against the Lord. Now, this rebellion would have been against David, but since David was the anointed of God, it was a rebellion against what God had instituted, which is why David wouldn't kill Saul, if you remember. So maybe this is referring back to Absalom's rebellion. Do you remember Ahithophel? Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And it says his counsel was so wise, it was considered that Ahithophel's counsel was as the counsel of God. And in 2 Samuel, I believe it is, 2 Samuel 15, 
David hears that Ahithophel is the one counseling his son Absalom to rebel against him. And David prays, Lord, make the counsel of Ahithophel confusion. And God did exactly that. And Ahithophel ended up killing himself when he saw that the coup was not going to succeed. However, David did live a very long time and faced many enemies. And I'm sure there are more enemies that David faced and more trouble at the court that he faced than the Bible even records. So it need not have been written on the occasion. The Psalms are written neutrally for the most part so that you can take their words and apply them to the situation that you are in. The Psalms are not just a record of what one person prayed one time. They are a lesson and a template for you and I to follow as we pray and as we worship. So now that he's identified who's accepted before God, the wicked will not be accepted, but I will be, not because of me, but because of your chesed, your loving kindness. So now he's going to describe what happens to each of these groups and describe their character a little bit. It starts with the wicked. In verse 9, he says, There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave, and they flatter with their tongue. That's pretty vivid, isn't it? Sometimes we can lean towards worship songs that are a little more uh, general and tame, you know, in their, their language. We should remember that they were singing stuff like this at church. I want to lift your hand. Lord, their throat is an open grave. <laughs> well, you might want to get comfortable with it because that's what they were doing in the scriptures. It's kind of funny, actually. A few years ago, everybody was complaining about how worship music had become bland and samey and nobody was branching out and trying new things. Then people started branching out and trying new things and people said, oh, we've never done this before. It's like, well, you got to pick one, friend, all right? I'm actually very, very excited about the direction of, of that movement. But anyway, it's not what the psalm's about. He's talking about those who speak lies. Talking about those who speak lies. He talked about them before as those that will not stand in the Lord's house and in fact will be destroyed according to verse 6. He compares their throat to an open grave. An open grave. And their tongues, it says in the ESV, they flatter with their tongue. But here's a fun word study that I did. The word for flatter there is the Hebrew word chalak. What do you say? Chalak. There you go. Nice chet sound there. That's what we need. Chalak. There are two meanings of this word. One of them is to divide or to portion, to split up. They'll, they'll talk about your inheritance in the Bible is derived from this word, chalak. But there is another meaning, which is actually the root and primary meaning of that word, which means to be smooth and is often used to describe things in the Bible that are slippery. So I think when he says they're, they're flattering, it's, it's talking about them being smooth-tongued, right? We still talk like that. He's a smooth talker. You don't really trust a smooth talker, do you? But he, I, I wish that the, they would translate this a little more explicitly here because when he says they flatter with their tongue, literally he's saying they're slippery and smooth with their tongue. Now let's look at the illustration he's using here. If the throat is an open grave, just above the throat is the tongue. And he says your, th your tongue is slippery. So he says when you talk, you're causing people to slip and fall down that open grave of your throat. So he's comparing this to like this, this pit that has treacherous footing on the outside that cause you to, to fall into it, is you bring destruction into people's lives by the way you talk. Very graphic image in, in a way there, isn't it? Very illustrative that he uses. Your throat is an open grave and your tongue is the slippery steps that go down into it. So this is what's called an imprecatory section of the psalm. Imprecatory is, to, to use the Tyler Warner translation, it's a get em, Lord psalm. 
Imprecatory means get them, Lord. Look what he says. Make them bear their guilt, O God. He could say, don't forgive them, Lord. Let them fall by their own counsels. And that might make you tense up a bit, but guess what, friends? It's in your Bible. Because out of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. Cast them out. Because he's talking about this rebellion. He says, instead of welcoming them, welcoming them into your house, God, cast them out of your house. Get out of my house. Imagine God saying that. Like when you read in Matthew 25 or the story of the sheep and the goats, or Jesus turns to those that are wicked and he says, depart from me, you cursed ones. Get out of here. Lord, it's me. I don't know you. You're not welcome here. And he cast them out. This is what David is calling them to do. He's, he's saying to the Lord, God, you see what they're doing. Don't let them get away with it. That, you ever felt that way? So before you sit there judging David, <laughs> well, you should pray for everybody to be saved. Okay, sure. But when it's your life that's being destroyed, when it's someone you love, you will feel that righteous indignation that says, God, put a stop to them. Stop what they're doing, Lord. There's another psalm that says, break the teeth of the unrighteous. That's another imprecatory section. And he says, because of the abundance of their transgressions, let them fall by their own counsels. So whatever David is facing, there's clearly plotting and tricks and flattery and court intrigue going on here. I mean, David was not a politician. David was a warrior. David wanted to solve problems with his fist and with a sword and a slingshot. He didn't want to deal with people sneaking around behind his back. And he's like, Lord, whatever they're plotting, may those plots just fail so spectacularly that it'll, it'll show everybody who they really are. Lies will catch up with you. Anybody ever found that out to be true? That lies catch up with you? Have you ever really gotten away with a lie? <laughs> Maybe you got away with it, but how'd you feel about it afterwards? Indeed, whatever sin you choose to live by is going to be your death. If you're going to be a liar and a schemer, lies and schemes are going to be what brings you down. Remember in Matthew 26, 52, Jesus said, whoever lives by the sword will perish by the sword. If that's the way you're going to live your life, Peter, as a violent man, violence is going to be your end. And I mean, I, I hardly need to come up with illustrations for examples of this. How about Samson? He's a lustful, prideful man. And what brought him down at the end? His lust with Delilah and his pride and thinking, even if I tell her my secret, they still can't stop me. How about Saul? King Saul, who was a good king for a while, but he became self-reliant. I don't even need God. I've got to lead these people, and I hope God helps. If not, I'll do it myself. Well, the last battle of his life found him desperate, searching for some help from God, but there was none to be found because he had lived a life of rebellion against the Lord. Alcoholics die of the drink, don't they? The thing that was their sin finally caught up with them. You know, there are those that have come out of the violent gang life. They'll tell you, nobody survives it. You're, whether that's the mafia, whether that's the cartels, whether that's any kind of street gang, like eventually they all die because you're living violently and violence is going to catch up with you. If you've ever read uh, The Divine Comedy by, by Dante, the Inferno. Everybody knows about Dante's Inferno. There's actually three parts to it. But he describes these seven levels of hell. It's not Bible. It's just poetry. But it's, it's very good, actually. I've read it. And he describes each level of hell that each person's sin is a, a twisted punishment based on what they did. 
And that's just poetry, but it's also life, isn't it? That when you're going to live in a persistent sin, that sin is going to be what gets you. Romans 1.28 says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. We can push against God's restraining hand so hard that he eventually removes it, and the thing that was the, the most important thing in our lives becomes the thing that strangles us to death. And that's what David is praying for. Let these schemers scheme themselves right out of your house, Lord. Those who walk in wickedness and rebel against that grace of God, they're lost. And I, as I get older, I, I, I'm learning to appreciate that term more. To say that someone is lost. Someone is lost. I, I think of friends of mine that grew up in the church and rebelled against the Lord. And now they've kind of left behind the worst of their sins, but they still don't want to come home to Christ. And their lives are a big mess. And I look at them and go, you're, you're lost. Or you hear somebody that is touted to be some intellectual or some famous person, and they ask them a question about life, and you go, wow, you're lost. You don't know where you're going. You're totally lost. There was a push in Christian circles a few years ago, and I think now we know who those culprits were, but saying, we shouldn't say that people are lost. That's not fair. That's not kind. Because that implies that, that nobody knows where they're going. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what it means. It's called sin. Outside of God's house, there is no joy. There's no peace. There's no hope. That's why a lot of people think Christians are faking. They say, oh, you're just like everybody else. No, my friend, this is the real deal. You have to say that. No, I don't. People leave the church every day. The ones that stay are the ones that have found Christ. Flee such things, friends. Whether you're walking in lies or, or any of these other things we've talked about, don't walk in that. It's a pit. And when you stand around the edge, the edge is slippery. There was a, there was a uh, waterfall in Virginia. It was beautiful to go to. People go up there and take pictures every year. And there's a big old sign that says, don't go over this fence to take pictures. There's a big old stretch. You all know by the Crabtree Falls. It's beautiful. There's a big old stretch. And you, you look at it and go, oh, I could stand out there. And every single year, somebody goes out there to take a picture, slips and falls off the edge of the waterfall to their death. Every single year. Because they think the fence is too far away from the line. I can get closer, not realizing how slippery it is. And that's what sin is, friends. It's only an open grave at the bottom. Meanwhile, though, compared to, to that, the darkness of that picture, David speaks of the joy and the exaltation for those who are found in God's house. What's exaltation? It's a touchdown celebration. That's what to exalt. To exalt something is to lift it up. But to exalt with a U is, yes, yes, that's exaltation. That's the Christian life. For those who are found in God's house, it's exaltation in there. Sometimes we think that being in God's house is going to be boring and quiet, and I'm just glad to be here. Just don't say anything about it. It's exaltation. Look at what he says, that we are singing for joy we're rejoicing, we're exalting, we're covered with blessing and favor. So who are these people? What kind of life is it to be welcomed into the house of the Lord? He gives us three things. The first one are those who walk in his ways. See verse 8, lead me in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. That's Christian humility. That's where religion starts. As when you stop saying, okay, God, let's cut a deal. And you say, lead me. That's why we call ourselves followers of Christ. 
Jesus said that it is a narrow road that we walk. It's a hard road. Don't forget that Jesus said it's a hard road. And there are few that find it. The way that leads to destruction is broad and wide and easy, and everybody finds that one. Remember I was backpacking one time in, uh, in, back in Virginia, McAfee's Knob. It's a really fun place to go hiking, but there's two, there, at the one starting place, you can either go the really skinny way wrapping around the hill, or what looks to be, I, I would expect it's a service road for the trucks. Much easier. And one time I started walking that way and found myself just in really tall grass, and I looked up, and there was the trail I was supposed to be on. There's people out there with their, you know, hiking sticks. I'm like, okay, I guess this, <laughs> guess it's going to be a longer hike than I thought today. I didn't do it morally, but I had chosen the easy road instead of the hard road. People do that every single day. But we are those who walk in his ways. We're directing our lives after his example and instruction. What Jesus did, that's what we do. What he said, that's what we do. And we don't come in with opinions on this stuff. What did Jesus do? I'm going to do that. To be saved is not to be complacent. The idea that, oh, I'm a Christian, I don't have to do anything. Ridiculous. We're to be diligent disciples of Jesus. We walk in his ways. Number two, those who seek his protection. You see that? He says, you spread your protection over them. It says in verse 12, you cover him with favor as with a shield. I think a Captain America crouching in front of somebody while the bullets are flying. Except way better because it's Jesus. Those who are welcome in God's house are those who cling to God as their help and their hope. We walk in diligent righteousness every day, but we never, ever place our trust or our confidence in those things. In fact, most of Christian maturity, I would say, is learning to stop trusting what you do to determine your relationship with God. We are clinging to Jesus for our protection. Remember the day you got saved? You had no hope. God, you got to help me. We really don't move much past that. <laughs> in one sense, we mature and we grow and hopefully we do better. But that's what it means to be saved. You've got to ask to be saved. Rather than relying on our works, it all comes back to crying out for help. And if you ever want to answer the question, who in the Old Testament will be saved and be in heaven? The ones that knew that God was the only one that could save them. And in anticipation... That God would one day provide an acceptable sacrifice, said, God, all I can do is cling to you. You can say it this way. Salvation has always and ever and only been by faith. And number three, those who are welcome in God's house are those who love his name. You see that verse 11, that those who love your name may exult in you. There's actually a great song that we used to sing when I was a kid from this this verse, let all those who trust in thee rejoice. And then the second verse was, let all those who love thy name rejoice. One of those songs where you could switch it out, like every, every time you went through, let all those who love thy word rejoice. And we would run through it like that. But think about that. To be somebody who's welcome in God's house is someone who loves his name, loves his name, who has a personal affection for the person of God. What is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord. Love the Lord. I do not care for those that want to try to make us feel bad for talking about loving God so much. This feels kind of sissy to me to talk about loving God. Really? Because that's the first and greatest commandment Jesus said. It's not romantic love. Forget that nonsense. 
It's a special, unique loyalty, personal affection. It's him. It's not just what he did. It's not just what he said. It's him. Do you see how this kind of scales down? We're starting by obeying his word, and now we're clinging to his protection. But in the end, it's him. I love him. I need him in my life. And that's where true spirituality lies, is a personal love for Christ. And in my experience, this is where you see the difference between spiritual coldness and spiritual warmth. Many folks that have all the right theology, but when it comes to that, that personal and even emotional devotion to Christ, they just can't get there because it feels so, so wishy-washy. It feels so nebulous, and I can't really write it down on paper. You're right. That's what love is. Well, calculate your wife's love for you today. Uh, it's a weird question, right? So if you think that your walk with Christ is all calculations and it's nothing to do with personal affection, you're missing it. Those that are welcome into God's house are those who love him back and desire to know him more than anything like Paul did. And that's Jesus' attitude for us, that we would be these things so that we can experience all the joy and blessings that are found in his house. Matthew 11, I love these verses, man. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And y'all, I, I feel in my heart the next revival, the next move of God that will come will be to a society that has been amped up to ten and a half for years and years and years. Anger and struggle and fighting and everything mattering so much. People are just going to get tired of it all. They're just going to, I just can't do this for another day. And there's going to be Jesus offering rest. Rest for your soul. And these are those who rejoice and exult because God spreads his protection over them as with a shield, his blessing. Don't ever feel like you got to fake the rejoicing without having the rest. The rejoicing springs out of finding rest in Christ. To walk with Jesus can only bring rest and can only bring joy because it means that all of life's big questions are answered. Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? I know. Because God loves us and God made us and he died for us and one day we're going to be with him forever in heaven. It means that all of our internal problems are worked out. What about my guilt? What about where I was hurt in the past? What about these, these temptations I can't quite get over? All that's washed away at the cross. And it means that your external world is now opened up because you have the commandments of God on how to use them and the blessing of God as you use them. Why else would we follow Jesus? It, it fixes everything. It was God's love that invited us to his house. And it's God's love that is going to welcome us into his house on that day. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far. And grace will lead us home. Can we not say that it is infinitely better to dwell in the house of the Lord? Isn't it better to follow Jesus? Now, sometimes we think, well, yeah, but what about this? I, I know, yeah, technically, but I really, really enjoy doing whatever your thing is. That's not really you, friend. 
That's your sin-addicted flesh. Sin-addicted flesh. You've got to have it. You ask an addict, wouldn't life be better without the drugs? And they'll tell you, yes, but there will be a part of them saying, you mean I'm going to go the rest of my life and never be high again? And they, they, they might say that, but you can be so frustrated. Like, that's not you. That's the, that's the drugs talking. That's the addiction talking. That's how we are with sin. Wouldn't you rather just be done with all that? Psalm 84, I know you know these verses. Psalm 84, 10 and 11. For one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be a Walmart greeter in heaven, putting stickers on people saying, hey, welcome to God's house, than be the richest guy in a penthouse anywhere else. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord. That's how Psalm 23 ends, remember? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The good news is that you have been welcomed into his house by the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything's been worked out so that you can come in. So now the option remains with you. You can try to build a life on the sand of sin and watch it fall down over and over again. Or you can build it on the rock of his righteousness that won't just sustain you in this life, but will carry you into the next one, which will last infinitely longer. And the way that we stand firm on that rock is through psalms like this one. Waking in the morning and calling on the Lord, groaning before him if need be, with a sacrifice of praise and devotion. Calling out for him to help us, to guide and protect me through the day. To place our trust in his loving kindness, not our works. Now you might be sitting here thinking, I'd love to come to the house of the Lord, but you don't know what I've done, sir. You told me that God does not allow wickedness into his house. Do you know the things that I've done? You were talking earlier about those people that don't think they're wicked. I'm sitting here and I know good and well I'm wicked. I'm watching this video. I'm listening on the radio. I'm here in this, this place right now. God won't welcome me. The best I can do is keep my head down and to see what happens. I'm, I'm big enough of a man to know the things I've done can never be paid for. Well, Jesus told a story about somebody like that. Jesus told a story about somebody that had squandered everything his father gave him and deliberately left his father's house until he was sitting there eating with the pods of the pigs, trying to share dinner with the pigs, with the hogs, until one day he said, you know what, I got to go back. Now I know I'll never be welcomed back, but maybe he'll let me be one of the servants. Maybe that's you. I know God will never accept me, but I'll come to church because at least I can be around it because even though I know I'm done for in my soul, at least we can just try to make the best of this life and maybe pass it on to my kids, my grandkids. Do you remember what happened when that son came walking home? His father saw him afar off and ran to greet him and threw his arms around his neck and his son started going through his speech. Father, I, I know I've sinned against you and I, I'm not worthy to be your son. And he said, kill the fatted calf. Put a robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Let's have a party because Luke 15, 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
No, the Bible says that the angels of heaven rejoice more over one sinner who repents than over a hundred people that don't need to repent. I grew up in the church. I never walked away from the Lord. And you might think, well, God loves somebody like you. No, there was a bigger party when you got saved than there ever was for me, friends. Hallelujah, Jesus. Don't think God won't welcome you. He has told you time and time again, the door is open and I'm waiting for you in my father's house.